the journey is finally complete. From the bottom to the top, Rangers are champions of Scotland. So much pressure on his shoulders. Not that you would ever guess it. A critical goal as Wickham try and try and chart away to an improbable second season in the championship. He's through the Hello and welcome to the Hopeless Wonder podcast with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers and Andy McBride. And if you're watching with us right now, say hello and make yourself known. But if you're listening to us, more importantly, great to have you as well. So you join us on the very evening that it is International Podcast Day. Um, and boy, um, Show to your love as well, because um, you guys, the listeners, have been showing a lot of love to us in the last week. Uh, been really like, I mean, I think tears of joy just seeing how many listens to our podcast as well. So we want to say massive thank you to our new listeners. Um, many from like far outreaches like Macedonia, believe it, lads, and uh, even America. So uh, great to have you listening. Um, and you know what? Share us the love. Show us that you're listening to the show where you can. Tag us on Twitter as well as Instagram. Or if you prefer, just email us as well. So more importantly, let's get this podcast off to a good start as well. And I'll introduce my co-host as well. So starting off with Andy. Uh, he has been reflecting about the fact that he thinks his days of roasting the Anglo-Italian pod is over. I'm sure there's still time, Andy. But more importantly, Andy, how have you been keeping? Yeah, I've been keeping good. Um, it's, you know, as I said, I'm running out of ways to look into Arsenal now. Um, but I'm, I'm sure this is, it's an early days of the season. But yeah, it's been a good week. So, uh, yeah, pleasure good to be times. here as always. No. Grateful to have you on, no doubt about that. And uh, for once, he's starting the pods this week as opposed to in the middle of the pods. So we'll welcome Craig. Craig, interesting attire for those that aren't watching right now. Uh, you seem to be donning a very retro Germany top right now. Yeah, it was. It happened actually when my, my girlfriend one day before the Euros decided that she wanted an England shirt. So I had to frantically online search for one. And, and as I was buying a shirt for her, I thought, get myself the 1990 uh, Italia 90 German shirt. So, yeah. But, yeah, good to be here. Got a bit of a sore throat, so I might be even harder to understand than normal. But, yeah, <laughs> glad to be here talking about football. And to echo your sentiment, yeah, shout out to all the, the new listeners, especially the, the one guy in Macedonia. Mm. All that Goran Pandev chat is finally Must paying off been. and we're uh, marking <laughs> ourselves in Eastern Europe. So, yeah, yeah, good to be here. And Sometimes for those that... available. <laughs> For those that aren't watching right now, I'm also donning a Poland shirt, so it feels like Andy's left out on the Eastern Bloc front. But never mind, Andy, I'm sure we'll uh, invest in some Moldovan shirts for you in future episodes. <laughs> so we may as well start off with what happened over the weekend. Um, so we'll start off with the Lo North London derby even, or the non-derby as Craig has alluded to. I've put in the notes that Arsenal are injecting Jamie O'Hara's tears even into their veins right now. Um, 
but yeah, lots of talk, talking points around this particular derby. Um, really comprehensive win for Arsenal, I thought, and um, a very poor Spurs side. A Spurs side that contained a Harry Kane that was very poor again. Um, really clearly didn't want to be there. But goals from Smith Rowe, Aubameyang, who I thought had a really good match, and Saka confirmed a 3-0 lead going into halftime. A sole consolation goal from Son really brought back Tottenham into the game a bit, but it was too late. The damage had been done. Um, we'll start off with yourself, Craig, because you called it the non-derby, I suppose. Um, lots of talking points, but let's start off with Arsenal. Um, we have to give them praise, don't we? Because the way they went about this match was... Um, yeah, great for their fans. But yeah, did, did you think we learned a little bit about Arsenal as well? I think so. And yeah, Rory from the Anglo-Italian pod, do not adjust your headset. I am going to give Arsenal some praise for the first time since we've done this pod. I thought Arsenal were superb uh, from Arteta's team selection to individual performances, control of the game. Their, their game plan was superb. They clearly wanted to bring Tottenham onto them um, and then spray the ball quickly when they win the ball. I thought Aaron Ramsdale, we might have to be a little bit revisionist going forward. Mm. Is, he a, is he a £30 million goalkeeper? No. Is he as bad as we make out? No. I think I thought he was great, an organiser, a bit of a hype man as well, getting the guys up for it, plays the crowd up. I thought Gabriel was great. I thought the front four, and it was a genuine front four, were, were superb. Arteta got it absolutely right with the team selection. So put an asterisk next to that. Mm. And the asterisk is Spurs were the complete opposite from Nuno's team selection all the way until about 80 minutes. They were exceptionally poor. And I didn't watch, I couldn't catch the first half, but I saw the Tottenham team come through on Twitter. Mm. And when I saw that midfield three, even I went, oh, you're going to go to your rivals away from home with a midfield three of Hoiberg and Dombele and Dele Alley with one pivot. The problem with number eight midfielders and box-to-box midfielders is they need to go to both boxes. So they can't just go to the front. They've got to come back to your box and defend as well. So Michael Arteta, whether they planned this the week before or whether they changed their plan mm. an hour before kickoff, the game plan from Arsenal was quite clearly allows us to come on. When we win the ball quickly, we will bypass Ndombele and, and Ali with quick passes. And they got two on twos, three on threes, four on threes. So often in that first half an hour, it was frightening to, to watch the highlights. I'm mm. thinking, when are they are, are Spurs going to do something to change this? Didn't change it anywhere near quickly enough. And that first 30 minutes was just an absolute blitz. Nuno got mm. it completely wrong uh, with that midfield three. Um and Arsenal were just were just superb. I threw a man the front four were, were excellent and thoroughly deserved the win. The last the last ten minutes they, they kind of they sat off and yeah. and they got the consolation. But at no point in the game did I really think that Arsenal were in any great trouble. I thought they defended when they had mm. to. Harry Kane. I mean, I'm sure Andy will, will, will chat about them as well. They've got an enormous problem on their hands because mm. no one will ever offer that money for him ever again. And the only reason I can think that Daniel Levy has kept him is to get to try and give himself an opportunity to qualify for the Champions League. That's the only reason I can think of. And with this manager now, that ain't Andy's fucking laughing. He's in hysterics, by the way, listener. But anyway, that, Craig, carry that, on. That can, that can be Daniel Levy's only thinking behind that is that we need to keep our best players because we need to try and qualify for the Champions League. But with this manager, it ain't, it ain't happening. 
So they've turned down reportedly 130 million pounds in the summer for this boy. And that's mm. that's you're never going to get that again. They should have taken the yeah. money and run. But they've got a serious problem now where they've got a Harry Kane who just ain't interested. And you know what? I think our predictions at the beginning of the season were right. I think ninth or tenth for this boss team is probably where they're going to be. And I think that's also very generous at this stage of the season. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, Andy, obviously we did mention about Nuno. Gomez uh, and his approach to this match. Uh, he did admit that he took full responsibility for that defeat, um, but he also kind of outed a player for not following his game plan. Um, a lot of speculation that that was Ali, um, but I would say there was more than one player that didn't follow the game plan, and it wasn't until Oliver Skip came on that actually protected the centre-backs, but like I think you called it in our kind of WhatsApp group, that was their best 11. That, I mean, bar the fact that Bergwijn wasn't playing, I mean, there's not much room for Nuno to kind of change around with that squad, unlikely to kind of change it in the future either because he's got a load of young players on the bench as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was a cause for potentially if he lost this match, you know, for him to move on. I've seen it on Twitter, obviously, lots of supporters calling for maybe a couple more games, but... I mean, whoever goes there is a bit like the Barcelona situation. They haven't got really got a hand to really change his squads. I mean, wh where do we go from this? And what, what does Nuno have to do in the next few games to convince the Spurs fans that there is a plan, there is something going on? I think Nuno's been dealt a really bad hand. I think, you know, he, the players, the fans, and he knows he was, what, fifth or sixth choice for that job? Um, and they're treating him as such, basically. They're literally, you know, he, you know, it's, there's this kind of feeling he's there because nobody else would take the job and it's somebody better via Mason. That's kind of like the, the standards they went to in the end. But the Spurs squad is full of players. They should have moved on years ago. You know, they should have taken the money with Harry Kane in the summer and ran. Uh, because that you know, 130 million pounds, even with Premier League prices, still buys you three or four you know starters for that Spurs mm. squad. Um, and I'm looking at their lineup, like apart from obviously Romero, who's acclimatizing to English football, you know, I'm pretty sure he's better than both Dyer and Sanchez. Um, I'm sure he'll come into it over a period of time. Um, you know. I thought that Giovanni Lachelso has been a bit of a disappointment because he looked really, really good at Betis, and I thought he would do a lot more um, than he has done at Spurs. And I just, they just got a very, this, they've just got a squad for the really um, stagnant players now. On and Dombele, he's never looked like he's fitted in. Like I know he got roasted by Jose Mourinho, and I know what he's like for wanting to dig out players, but. It just outstands me that he's like a 25 something year old and he can't complete a full 90 minutes or for the, you know, uh, in Premier League football. He's had ample time to get fit. You know, Hjoiberg does a job um, as a defensive pivot, but you need someone to take the creative burden of him. Um, Deli Ali, I think that is just a case of, I think they're just playing game in the hope he picks up some form and mm. maybe a bit of resale value because. He is an absolute, since Mourinho days, he's an absolute shadow of a player who was under Pochettino. If you think about, what, four 
years ago, he was one of the best attacking midfielders in the league. Like you, you, you're expecting double figures in terms of goals and assists. Uh, so there's an awful lot of problems which Spurs don't have the money to solve. I think the only hope I would give them is that uh, maybe City come back with um, a bid for Kane, probably for less money. Um, but because City still need a number nine, I think mm. some of their performances have indicated they could do with a number nine. Um, maybe that's a solution for them. But yeah, they just look utterly rudderless. And again, a bit like the Barcelona situation, I don't really see what Saki Nuno is going to do. Like, they might get somebody that plays aesthetically better football, but I don't think they're going to finish any higher than, you know, eighth or ninth. Whereas I think with Arsenal, I think maybe I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but. I think maybe you've been a little bit harsh. I think um, I was looking at the, you know, their back four of uh, Tommy Yasu, who I admit mm. hadn't watched a lot of in Syria. I know probably you boys have, and obviously the Anglo Italian lads have. And he looks very, very solid, uh, i.e., can actually defend, uh, <laughs> which is a bit of a bonus in the Arsenal squad. And Gabriel, who's had his injury problems, actually looks a proper player mm. uh, with Ben White. And you look at, and with Tierney as well, that back four, if it could stay fit. And with the personnel, that's a massive if. Uh, then they have got something to build from. And I think um, Udegaard, Smith, Rowe and Saka, I think that's the kind of attacking midfield profile that Arteta wants. He wants players that can interchange in position, work hard out of possession, which um, Saka and Smith, Rowe do especially well. Mm. And Thomas Partey as well. I think he's been another underrated um, absence for them because... You know, he was injured for quite a lot of last season and they really missed him. And he is he is a, an actual box-to-box player that does both boxes, as Craig was saying, was missing in the Spurs squad. So, yeah, I was really impressed. And I think with Ramsdale as well, like, um, you know, I still think the price tag was a bit much for what he is. But I guess if you think about mm. it another way, he's 24 years old. He's already knocked up a couple of hundred appearances um, he's used to adversity, having been part of a relegated team for three times. So maybe his mentality suits Arsenal. It's just kind of like, well, I've been for an awful lot of shit beforehand, mm. so I could deal with whatever happens at Arsenal. And I think, um, again, I guess it's just perception, but he seems to have a better bond communication with his defenders. Mm. Um, he's, you know, he's there like constantly in their ear and you know, shout them into position and stuff like that. And maybe that side of things is something that hasn't been there before. Who knows? Yeah. Um, no, I was I was going to say that because David Priest, obviously on the Totally Football podcast, uh, mentioned about the fact that he's constantly shouting at his defenders to the point that he actually took control. Um, and that's maybe something that Leno, who we kind of, I suppose, if you go back to the Brentford match, where that throw-in happens and no one was taking control of that situation. Whereas for this match, that didn't happen. There was barely any of that. And I wonder um, for either of you two, whether you think that was a kind of a decisive action that they needed, that they needed someone at the back to really call out those kind of balls that, you know, would normally be maybe dealt with by a centre-back, but maybe they haven't got that understanding between Gabriel and Ben White. Yeah, it's very possible. They haven't really had a goalkeeper like that for a long, long time. And, and the best goalkeepers don't just do the work between the sticks. They are organisers. We've, we've had a, one of the best examples of that at Rangers, with Alan McGregor, for mm. over two spells. And he's he's absolutely fantastic at that and talks 
younger or less experienced players through the game. Uh, I know that, like you see it, that Ben White definitely benefits from that, uh, of being sort of marshaled around and, and told what to do. So, yeah, absolutely a leader. And <clears throat> Kepa potentially may be a, a better shot stopper, but I think what Ramsdale so far has given them is a sense of organisation that I haven't seen from Arsenal in quite a few years. Mm. Quick word on Kane for you, Andy, though. Um, where does he go from here? Because obviously whatever he seems to be doing right now, I mean, he's devalued his valuation straight away by the way he's acting right now. But is there a way back for him? Um, I don't know. I think unless Daniel Levy says so, he's staying where he is for the next mm. two or three years. And I think also um, Harry Kane's always had quite slow starts to the season. He rare, you know, even before this summer, he rarely starts... Um, on fire, um, and I think he will get back in the goals. You know, if you're being, if you know, we're only what six weeks into the season, um, yeah. so I think it's a little bit unfair to judge at this point. I think if we're, at, you know, after Christmas fixtures and we've played 90 or 20 games and he's still in this same run of form that he's in at the moment, and then you know, obviously, serious questions are going to be asked. But um, at the end of the day, he's going to be playing every week regardless because there's no one there to replace him. They haven't got uh, anything. They haven't got anything to replace him with. Um, so yeah, I think what will probably happen is that he'll sulk for the next year, uh, Alan Modric, and um, mm. and just go next year for a vastly reduced fee. And I just don't, I just, it's just one of those situations. I don't understand who wins out of that situation. Harry Kane doesn't win because he hasn't been able to leave. I'm not sure even Daniel Levy thinks he's winning now because his squad are worse off. He's not going to get as much money. Uh, whereas mm. the manager's got to deal with a player who doesn't want to be there. Yeah. And his teammates know he doesn't want to be there. The whole world knows. And that, you know, whether, however professional or not that you are, it's going to play into your mind. Um, and it's going to, you know, it's a shame there's not another Amazon season of um, All or Nothing because that <laughs> would be quite fun, <laughs> especially the conversations of Levy. But uh, yeah, I don't know what the I don't know what the um, what's going to happen. I think the solution is to let him go for a take some money, but that's mm. easier said than done. Craig, just to conclude this section, um, this asterisk is it very dependent on what they do in the next few games for Arsenal? I mean, and I'm talking about the Brighton game that's going to happen on Saturday as well. Yeah, you've you've stole my thunder a little bit. I've written that down as one of my my games to watch. That is, you're right, is a is a crucial game because it's okay getting up for your derby against uh, your nearest rivals and it's they're easy you don't have to motivate yourself you don't have to motivate the players it just comes naturally with a big game like that mm. um, and that motivation and determination is something I haven't seen from Arsenal yet this season and it won't mean an awful lot if they don't show that same determination against Brighton and then get turned over at the weekend so good green shoots of recovery that's you know three wins in the bounce in the Premier League um, so after the start that they've had good but they've got to go and do it against your you know, your Brighton, your Crystal Palaces, yeah, all these other clubs, you've got to go and do it with them again. Staying with you, Craig, um, I think there's a bit of humble pie, uh, especially for me, about calling Tuchel a uh, world-class yeah, coach uh, uh, after that result with Mancy and Should have listened to Andy. Yeah, clearly. Um, <laughs> That's, I never thought I'd hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I thought I'd uh, kind of allude to here was um, Chelsea were really poor 
and um, their fans also were saying how disappointing they were in the sense that they were trying to play out of the back, but because Man City were full of pressure on them, um, there was no way that they were going to get the ball beyond the halfway line. Um, call out Werner struggled again for this match. Um, were you a bit surprised at this approach in particular, or do you think this is just one of those kind of games where sometimes it just doesn't go right for you? No, I was surprised and yeah, humble pie after me saying that Chelsea are potentially the best club in Europe to get beat twice in four days. So mm. as a lesson, kids, do not bet based on what I say in this podcast because it's generally quite wrong. <laughs> um, I wasn't surprised that Man City pressed the way they did. They've got form mm. for that. They're a fantastic pressing team when it comes off. What I was surprised with was Chelsea's inability to beat that press. Now, usually a Thomas Tuchel side or a Chelsea side, the midfielders will come short they'll play some nice passing and when they beat that press they can then go. But Manchester City's press was such that it was just so overwhelming. Chelsea just couldn't get out and you could see the panic and the mm. temptation when you're, you know, you put, you put your head up and your midfielders are covered and there's pressers running towards you. The temptation with someone like Lukaku there is just to fire it long. But Manchester City were prepared for that. Ruben Diaz did that, a great job on him and very, very quickly Chelsea ran out of ideas they just couldn't get out their own half so very very not surprised that Manchester City's approach because they've done it before uh, and they're good at it but very surprised that Chelsea didn't have that composure in the whereabouts just to to try and play that press I can't really remember any time really they they broke the press and Man City were running towards their own goal Manchester City controlled the the game really really well Um, and then Chelsea again disappointing in in Turin as well so yeah not Mm. not a great weekend I'm going to you know, shut my mouth now and not talk about anyone ever again. <laughs> and Andy, I'm going to move on to a different game. So Brentford drawing three all against Liverpool. We talked about Ivan Tony. Um, another star, oh, star came out of the Brentford uh, squad for this match, and it was Janelt. Um, But again, I was really impressed by Brentford's press, despite the fact that there was numerous times where they were going behind in the match. Um, just a fight back. And uh, interestingly, it was uh, talked about the fact that they used four players on Alexander-Arnold in terms of marking him and making sure that he wasn't going to contribute in a certain way. But again, Tony had a really good contribution to this match. Um, Yeah, do you think Brentford have a good chance of being in the top half of the table based on this form? Yeah, I mean, you always do get a promoted side that exceeds expectations. Um, it happens every season, you know. You obviously had Leeds last season, you have Sheffield United, you know, before that. And I think it'd be Brentford this year is that they just seem to play, you know, without any, I know it sounds such a cliche, but they are playing with a side that does have quality, but also without fear as well. Um, you know, they've got a new stadium, and I think they're still very much, um, still benefiting from the momentum of last season because they, they go active and it's sort of, you know, the thing I always found with uh, Liverpool is um, you can get at them. It was shown towards the end of last season that you can, you know, or in the middle of last season um, is that if you do get at their full backs and close them down, you do actually shut off the main routes of attack that they have. Um, and I think that's something um, that, you know, teams are utilising a bit more and, and they've got a lot of energy um, you know, they, you know, they do interchange a little bit obviously as we said with Tony last week he is um, he does occupy a couple of centre-backs 
Mm. Um, and that's, you know, and that's a sort of a, a skill in itself. And I think another one as well, their keeper, David David Rea, I mean, although yeah. he obviously conceded three goals, made some very, very good saves. Um, and from what I saw of him in the championship, he looked like a sort of good keeper. Um, and I think the thing with Liverpool is that they don't have a huge amount of game changers um, off the bench. Like, for example, they're able to bring Roberto Firmino on, but from an attacking point of view, they've got uh, Minamino, who contributes, hasn't really contributed anything since um, being in England. Um, you've got Divo Carigi, like I just add that to the sack of useless Belgian strikers. Uh, <laughs> watch him score at like, the weekend now. <laughs> um, but yeah, they haven't, I don't think Liverpool have got that much depth to change games. And I think that is a concern for them because mm. when they won the league, they won the league because they're able to play the same 11 week in, week out. Um, although I would say that Curtis Jones uh, does look like a hell of a player for them. Mm. Um you know, he scores, he sees one of those players that scores some proper nice goals. And I think he'll be one that does get a lot of game time this season. But yeah, I think um, it's probably a good result for Liverpool in the respect that, you know, any kind of um, overconfidence would have been sort of knocked out of them. And, you know, even the like, even against the likes of Brentford, you've got to be playing at 100%. Mm. On David Rea, I'd have to say there was a bit of doubt about whether he could do it at Premier League level because certainly in the Championship, he did struggle a few times and he would make a few mistakes, but he's proved himself this year, certainly, and I think he's up to his game. Some, I think some keepers suit the Premier League better than they do the Championship, mm. if that makes sense. Because although the Championship is a lower division, it's a lot more physical, it's a lot more rough yeah. and ready, and it, I think it requires a different skill set of goalkeepers, whereas in the Premier League, there's a bit more protection from referees because of VAR. Um, there's a lot more encouragement to play it out from the back and that kind of thing. And maybe mm. it suits, um, you know, a goalkeeper, if he, a sweeper keeper type like him a little bit more, um, potentially. Mm. We'll move on to Man United. And I thought, Craig, we'll talk about it just to let Andy have a little breather and also contribute at some point. Um, I never thought I'd utter these words, but a Wicked Wanderers youth player scored at Old Trafford on Saturday. That was Courtney House. Almost conceded uh, another goal through a penalty, but uh, Emmy Martinez, shithousery, won over, well, Bruno Fernandes anyway, for sure. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about it because it's a really good point that you made on our WhatsApp group is what the hell are Man United? Are they actually good or have you decided in the last 24 hours if they're still good or because I, I kind of put in our group, it's a combination of absolute like individual brilliance and a team ethic that seems to be getting them through certain games. But yeah, obviously Andy uses the terminology of it's just vibes, Man United vibes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I buy into that personally, but yeah, Craig, in the last 24 hours, have you kind of worked it out if they're any good? No, I'll need more than 24 hours. I'm going to need about six months to the end of the season, really. I, 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 I don't, I just don't, I don't understand. I don't know whether, are they, are they good or are they lucky? And even if they're lucky, does that make them a good team? I just don't get me wrong. Manchester United have got a fantastic squad. Don't they've got some absolutely phenomenal individual players. But at the moment, and Andy, you watch them far more than I, but it feels like there's no real tactical plan 
and we're and they're just banking that one of these fantastic players will do something and win as a game. And even the game against Villarreal last night, I saw clips and I thought they were mm. quite poor. And then, like I said, one of those one of those fantastic players jumps up and scores a goal. And I wonder if, despite the law of averages, and Rangers are going through something similar at the moment as well, where we're not playing well and we're just scraping wins really. And the feeling that I've got with Rangers is similar to what I've got with Man United, is that are are we just paper over the cracks? And is this is there going to be a time where some of these good players hit a dip in form and are we are going to start drawing games and losing games? And I don't know whether this will continue the way it is, or I just I don't know. They just they, it feels it feels very, very lucky or it feels very, very I don't know what to say, desperate, but it's always just nicking it here, nicking it there, last minute goals mm-hmm. and um I don't know, I can't remember, and Andy, I'll, I'll come to you next. I can't remember a time where Manchester United take away Leeds and take away Newcastle, but really controlled the game and imposed their will. And it was a, it was a really clear game plan. And you and you looked at it and went, Man United were great. It just feels like against any sort of half-decent team, it's just, you know, we'll, we'll put 11 players out and someone will do something. But Andy, I, you watch them a lot more than I. What's, what's your kind of thoughts on Man United so far? Or, or are you as in the dark as we all are? I think sometimes I do I admit, I do struggle to work out what the game plan is. Um, you know, I don't understand the quality of players that we have available. And it has kind of led me to think about the whole Ollie situation a bit more. Now, you know, I guess Twitter's quite a strange place. For toxic. Them. Like, you, it it's is. Toxic, you've got, yeah. especially as a Manchester United fan, you've either got Ollie in or Ollie out. Um, and you can't, you can't have middle of the road opinions and unfortunately mine is middle of the road is that I support the manager until such time and not the manager so that's always been my kind of you know base level view of it as a supporter but I do think that he's not making the most out of the talent he's got available to him Mm. um you know you do look at some other managers in the league or elsewhere in Europe and go there's probably other managers that would get more out of that squad of players because it's you know a lot. Of, although we've signed obviously the likes of um, Sancho, Verano, Ronaldo, the rest of the players have been there for a decent amount of time now. Uh, they've been in England for a good couple. Of, they've got a core squad of players that have been there for a good couple of years, and it's Solskjaer's team. Um, mm. There's only a handful of players that start for Manchester United now that were there when uh, obviously back in the Jose Van Gaal days. And yeah, it's just this, there doesn't seem to be a strategy from playing it through midfield and what combinations are going to be used and where players are going to be in order to get the ball into the box in a prime um, shooting position. Like you've got Ronaldo, well, probably if not the best finisher in football, um, Mm. just for pure finishing off half chances here and there. Uh, we're not getting the ball to him enough. Um, and there seems to be this the, the problem, there's this sort of double-edged sword where if we play McTominay and Fred, we don't have enough creativity. But if we don't play McTominay and Fred, we're shocking defensively. Uh, and you look, you know, the Villarreal game last night, we could, if they had Gerard Moreno fit, we probably could have lost that by two or three goals quite easily. Uh, I think we're benefiting from David De Gea somehow bringing back his 2018 form. I don't know where this form has come from, but I'm immensely <laughs> appreciative <laughs> for it because he's back. He's some whatever reason he's come back to his best. Um, mm. But so yeah, I think yeah, there is concerns there, and 
you know, the loss against Villa uh, was 100% coming. They deserved the win. They're pressing high up the pitch. Uh, they say, you know, every team likes to play out from the back, but a bit like, you know, Tuchel did the weekend, they didn't seem, they didn't seem to be a plan B. You thought, well, sometimes you can't play out from the back. You have to do something else. Um, and they don't, they didn't seem to be that kind of option available. And I think, um, you know, some of the bench players haven't had too much of an impact either. Like, for example, with Donny van der Beek, like, I think in January, they've just got to sell him. I think it's very, very, very clear at this point, it's not going to work. He's never going to get, what was funny last night is that a journalist leaked a lineup with Van der Beek starting, and he's destroyed his whole credibility because any man, any Manchester United fan knows that in a game of actual importance, Donny <laughs> Van der Beek is not going anywhere near the football pitch. Because I think, I think, I know again, maybe it's speculative, but I don't think Oli wanted him in the first place. I think it was a signing to placate the angry fans last summer. Um, he, he's, you know. For whatever he does, whatever happens on the training pitch that we do not see, it's obviously not been enough to warrant a place in the mm. starting lineup. And sometimes you just have to go, it's not going to work, take some money for him. Um, I know what will happen. He'll go elsewhere, he'll be world class, and we'll go, oh, we need a midfielder like that. That's what will happen. Uh, but mm. yeah, we could, for every game we played this season, apart from Leeds and Newcastle, we could have, it's, 50 50 yeah. whether we could have won or lost and at the moment i'm looking at our results our fixtures and going i have no idea what's going to happen our next game is against everton i genuinely mm. don't know what the what the plan is going to be whether we'll win or whether we lose if anything the only games we have a plan in um are actually the big games so you know man's one thing that Solskjaer does have in the bank is his record against top teams is very, very good. He's got one of the best win records over um, Pep Guardiola. Did the double with them last season. A um, couple of the draws with Chelsea last season, including when Tuchel was still there. Oh, well, Tuchel took charge, rather. Um, apart from a loss against Arsenal um, and Liverpool at the end of the season, our results against Big Six team were good. I'm not worried about those kind of fixtures. It's just, it's just what happens when that balance in maybe winning games turns into mm. shit. The opposition takes their chances because that's going to happen if we keep if you keep conceding 15, 20 shots on goal, you're going to come across that team, whoever that might be, that scores five or six of them because that had that is football. You're going to come up against a striker that's banging form. Um, and makes you look a little bit silly. So yeah, it's. But I can I can tell you what's going to happen over the next month or so because I just don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. What yourself, Adam? What's what's your thoughts on United and <clears throat> what you've seen so far? Well, everything that sounds like we we're talking about is about that tactical aspect, doesn't it? It sounds like the balance isn't there. I was going to ask Andy whether he felt maybe. Ollie doesn't know his 11 to an extent because I've seen a lot of chopping and changing. Now, I appreciate certain games might need certain types of players, and that's the whole point of having a squad. Um, but bar maybe the back four, if he's got a full kind of setup, he kind of knows what that back four is going to look like. It's just for me, I wonder whether he's still unsure about that midfield. And I think we've talked quite extensively about that midfield centerpiece. So 
we, we won't go into detail, but I also wonder if the fact that Ronaldo being there, which was a bit of a curveball, let's put it that way, has changed that dynamic. Because um, I personally fancied Cavani this season. I thought he'd like push on from last season, be that kind of influential, like talismanic striker that could, you know, not necessarily always score, but certainly be just the clever, wise man in terms of striker. And I, I do wonder and I question and I wonder whether either of you two can agree or disagree with this statement. But do we feel that there's the tactical nous of Solskjaer is lacking, which is why they're not progressing in games like, say, for example, Aston Villa and to an extent yesterday against Villarreal? Or is it the players that just aren't intelligent enough to do it? And I, I, I kind of sway more to Solskjaer because I just think you... You've got good players there. I'm sure under a different coach, they would react or do things differently. I mean, Craig, we talked about Tuchel and how he's brought his philosophy to the game. If you brought Tuchel to Man United, do you think that would be a completely different Man United in the way they approach games? 100%. And, it's, and not only Tuchel, I think we could probably, between the three of us, list off 10 managers who Manchester United could feasibly go and get. Let's not kid, kid themselves. Manchester United are... What, one of the top three biggest clubs in the world, financially mm -hmm. superior to just about anyone else on the planet if they're not owned by a state. There aren't many managers out there that are out of Manchester United's reach and there is no one that will ever convince me that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the best that Manchester United could go and get. So I, I jokingly, half tongue-in-cheek, said that last season was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's high watermark. Mm -hmm. I, I still yeah. stand by that. And I think at a point... A lot of people, when it's already started to happen, are having the same... <laughs> I think he's a little bit better than bang average, but he's absolutely not elite. And I think a lot of Manchester United fans are coming to your realisation, Adam, that you know, we do have a, a really elite squad of players here. We, we need a manager to really unlock that potential if we're going to start challenging for titles, getting into semi-finals, finals of Champions Leagues. They need to, a manager to unlock that potential. And these individual players and these, this individual greatness will get you so far, absolutely. But to make those individual players become a world-class team takes a world-class manager. I just don't think, you know, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is quite there, you know, Manchester United fans, whether it's the end of this season or halfway through next or whenever mm -hmm. that is, that will eventually come home to roost in Manchester United to reach the next level uh, and get back to where they belong we'll need to go out and recruit a better class of manager, in my personal opinion. Andy, mm. I don't know what, what your thoughts are. I think my part, I saw a great analogy on Twitter. I can't remember it was from, I saw it in passing. Is that at what point uh, do you give a chef all the ingredients he needs before realising he can't cook? Uh, <laughs> that is fantastic. And I, can't, I wish I remembered where it was from because I just literally saw it in passing. And, you know, He's been given, like, he needed a winger, he got a winger. He needed a top-class centre-back to part of the Maguire. He's got that top-class centre-back. You know, he's got Cavani adding one of the best players who have played the game of football. You've got him as well. But, you know, it, I mean, it is very much a glazer thing to do to ignore the outstanding position you need, which is defensive midfield. Um, and then go and get Ronaldo because, you know, yay, shirt sales. Uh, you know, that's also the <laughs> other side of it, which I don't think is under Ole's control. I think some of the decisions that are made are made for other non-footballing reasons. And I think that's prob probably why maybe we haven't been able to get certain managers in the past. Um, I think that's a consideration that's worth 
factoring him and placing your opinion. And again, as I said before, like I would really love Ali Gunnar Solskjaer to prove me wrong and win something. Um, you know, because he is a legend of the club. And like I said, I just really want him to do well. Um, even if it's like a Van Hull kind of thing, he, he wins an FA Cup and we can go, actually, you know what, thank you. You've won a trophy. You've yeah. put the club in a much better position, but we're going to go in a different direction. That would be the ideal, maybe the ideal scenario. But I think bringing Ronaldo in could also cost Ole. Because same with Varane. These are elite players that are used to competing in the arse end of the Champions League, winning league titles. Like those two players aren't going to put up same, and also Bruno Fernandes to a point of his mentality. Those kind of players are not going to put up with mediocrity for too long. Um, You know, at what point do they go? This isn't working Uh, because you you can't imagine either of those three players being particularly shy in expressing. And I know Ronaldo back in his Madrid days was never particularly shy of expressing how he felt. Um, about a manager or someone like that. And I think that's the other side of it. The expectations are higher. I think among Manchester United fans this season, I include myself in that, is he's got to win something. Um, mm. And the three trophies that are available at the moment is the FA Cup, the Premier League and the Champions League. And as far as I'm concerned, he has got to win one of them. Um, however, you know, obviously we can all we can talk all day about whether that will happen or not. But if he doesn't, I think at that point you go, well, look, you've done, you've put the club in a much better position. Like you think about how toxic and how bad the club was in when Jose Mourinho left. Ole will always deserve credit for taking mm. us out of that. And I think as much as maybe tactically there is. He is lacking, I think, in terms of like man management and what he does off the pitch and the type of players and the mentality of players that he's brought into the club. I think he does deserve credit for that, yeah. um, if I'm being completely fair. Because, yeah. you know, you, you look at the players that are brought in and they do, you think, actually, yeah, Varane absolutely needed. Uh, someone like Sancho absolutely needed. Like, you know, he's... They're not just bought in the likes of Di Maria. You know, like the types of players like Falcao and Di Maria and Schweinstein. You know, players that didn't really want to come to Man United. They just went because of the money. Um, So I think that's the off-pitch stuff. I think he'll he'll always deserve credit for. Whether it'll be enough to win, whether he's done enough to win trophies, we'll see at the end of the season. And that's that's my take Mm. on it. We'll see what happens yeah. at the end of the season. I think, unless it looks like we're not going to qualify for the Champions League or we get knocked out at the group stages, I don't think there's any. I think he deserves at least a season to see it out. And I think okay. that's a perfect time to go. Yep, let's see what let's take stock of what happened and go one way or the other. Well, our good old friend Chris Hanley has spoken as well, and he's <laughs> concluded that Manu will never win big trophies with Ollie in charge. So we'll leave that topic for now and move into the Champions League. And uh, the sheriffs have turned up uh, well and truly. Uh, I wanted to ask both of you, do you think in terms of that result, was that the biggest shock we've seen in Champions League history? Because I remember Ruben Kazan obviously did that shock against Barcelona a good few years ago. Um, But where does this kind of fit in that narrative? If we start off with yourself, Craig. Yeah, for, for me, it absolutely is. And I saw a fantastic tweet that says, 
a club whose badge was clearly done on Microsoft Paint going <laughs> to the Bernabeu and beating Real Madrid. Um, Real Madrid are not the side that they were you know, four years ago, but they are still one of the biggest clubs in world football and to have Sheriff first up. Um, their, their result in match they won against uh, Shakhtar was was bonkers enough. I mean, even mm. if that's all they did in this group stage and bowed out, then they could be proud of themselves. But to go to the Bernabeu and and you know to beat to beat Real Madrid thirteen times champions uh, is just absolutely just world class, just fairy tales, mm. and it, it just it made me it made me just laugh and smile a little bit with the the Super League clubs and Florentino Perez and yeah. these clubs don't deserve to be in the Champions League and for you know for little sheriff to go to to Madrid and beat them is just just what we what we love about football absolutely it's superb. And Andy, that goal. I know, obviously, Sheriff has got this kind of perception that they're being owned by mafias uh, and the fact that the whole town is basically Sheriff-like attire and stationery and the whole lot. You know, you've got even Milk that is sponsored by Sheriff. Um, but yeah, that goal, Sebastian Till, what a goal to win the match. Oh, and you'll never hit a sweeter strike than that ever. Um, it's... Um... And it's a strange of a lad that done it. Like um, he's he's only ever up until this season, he'd only ever played in Luxembourg. He's twenty seven and he's only got sixteen Luxembourg caps. So he's not even the best yeah. player in Luxembourg. Um, but he scored an absolute worldie. Um, it's yeah, it's a, I think it's almost like a fairy tale. Uh, it's a fairy tale to an extent, but also like. Um, the background and the ownership of that club is murky as fuck, <laughs> even by UEFA standards. So basically, Sheriff uh, Tiraspol is in a disputed territory of Moldova, yeah. and I'm probably going to send international politics lecturers mad here, but it's essentially <laughs> a part of Moldova who, full of people who don't want to be Moldovans, I think yeah. they're Russians. But they're not. They're in, they're in Moldova, uh, <laughs> so that's one history yeah. lesson for you there. The club that the people that own them are a kind of mafia-ish kind of organization um, that own all of the local businesses around um, the Tiraspol area, and they've got like uh, like a two hundred. Apparently, their training grounds like couple of hundred million or something ludicrous like that <laughs> and it's their squad is just full of basically second and third rate resilience so they have got quite large financial backing from somewhat dubious resources yeah. <laughs> so in, in classic you know you wait for club fashion but um and they were only founded in like 2007 mm. so you know we're older and then uh, then the club. Um, it's um, yeah, I think it's Trinisteria. That's it. That's the area that, that the disputed yeah. bit of the area. Um, it's yeah, it's a geopolitical mess. But they've got a good football team. So hey, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Just to answer Chris's point, they they put the highlights of the game on their Twitter and YouTube page, and UEFA went, yeah, we know you guys are new, but you know, copyright, and they just went. Well, fuck it. This yeah. <laughs> just left on. <laughs> Gotta love oh, okay. it. Gotta love it. I hope they progress very far into this competition because that, that would be a beauty to see them in a like a semi-final stage or something like that. That's for sure. <laughs> um, if we uh go to a different type of game, and that was Benfica versus Barcelona, we have to mention before we talk about Barcelona, 
how good were Benfica last night? And I know there's some factors around, you know, Barcelona not being a team right now. But Nunes, for example, really good. I know he was, had on the back Darwin, so I don't know if that's related to the actual Darwin. But yeah, um, what a player. He seems like a really good, talented player. Craig, you mentioned that he played against Rangers a few seasons back as well. Yeah, we, we played Benfica in the Europa League group stage last year, actually. And, and we drew with them twice. I think it was three all over there and two all at Ibrox potentially mm. and he was he was a standout player we were actually i think three one up in portugal and they brought him on and he changed the game and uh ever since then i've been keeping a bit of an eye on him because he absolutely as a player is destined to go on and, and play one of the, the big five leagues um for a, for a big club but yeah but that, that the demise of barcelona when you think they've hit rock bottom they just they just think a little bit lower and looking at my, my fixtures coming up they've got to go to atletico madrid at the weekend, yes, so that could yeah. be another pasting, and then you wonder, you know, how how much how much longer Ronald Koeman's got. And the two name the two names I've heard linked was Roberto Martinez and yep. fucking Andrea Pirlo. Yes, you know, yeah. they've, they've not even they've not even paid off Lopetegui yet. Not even placed yeah, that and Setien, Setien as well. Setien, sorry, Setien, my apologies. Setien. Setien, they've not paid off Setien yet, so they still need to pay him off. Then Koeman's got sixteen million quid release clause if he gets sacked. So, uh, Andy's right. What, what do you do? You just got to play him. But credit to Benfica, not the best Barcelona side that we'll ever see. Of course not. But they, they you only play what's in front of them. And I thought they were they were mm. superb. Pace of the game, from what I saw from the highlights, they were excellent. And yeah, you're absolutely right to point out um, Darwin Nunes. He's a player that you could quite easily see in the Premier League. He's got the build. He's got that physicality uh, and a really good finisher. So yeah, definitely one to watch for. And Andy, I forgot that Otamendi was playing for Benfica, as was a certain Adel Tarapt. He came off the bench as well. So, uh, yeah, it's w- weird to think that Adel Tarapt got one over Barcelona. You wouldn't have said well, that. Well, I think a few he's been though, because Adel Tarapt, like from all we saw of him in the Premier League, like he turned into like a quite a decent defensive midfielder for <laughs> Benfica, which you couldn't really imagine when he was QPR no. days, and. We are living in a weird reality in which uh, Nicholas Otamendi's on the pitch and he's the best defender on the pit on the team with Barcelona players. Because <laughs> I think uh, I saw quite a lot of um, angry Barcelona fans ripping into um, Eric Garcia because um, yeah, yeah. they they what who did they bin off in the summer? Was it so uh, Jean Claire Twadibo? Um, They've been him yeah. off in the summer, and if you know, he was literally brought back Eric Garcia because he's you know Catalan and ex Barca yeah. Academy and all that nonsense. And they they basically been they basically tapped him up over a year ago, which is partly why he didn't get any games for City last season, really. Uh, mm. but he's looked shaky as hell. But again, like you look at their team, it's a team that's in need of a massive refresh, and like unfortunately for playing, um, you know an under, underplayed Eric Garcia at the back and uh, De Jong up top, what do you expect? Yeah. <laughs> and I think at this point, Kuma's just trying to get himself sacked because he, <laughs> yeah. some of the stuff he's coming out with, he's just like, fucking sack me, I might as well just take yeah. the pay off. Just zero, <laughs> zero fucks, pay me yeah. off, basically. Pretty much, yeah. Like, I come up with that point, is that Kuma will eventually get the sack uh, and after the 2022 World Cup, he'll get his he'll get the Netherlands job back, and 
it'll be <laughs> it'll be fucking sorted. But we also live in a world where we just Barcelona keep going through ex Everton managers. Oh, failed God, yeah. Everton managers. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to go through so, Ronald Koeman. Then they're going to go to uh, Roberto, Roberto Martinez. Like we're then only it's Carlo few... Ancelotti, maybe David Moyes thereafter. Yeah, I mean, oh, Moyes at the uh, Barcelona. <laughs> I imagine that. But I, I just think that's I mean, just... bad. Wait, wait until uh, Sam Allardyce walks up. At the door, like... <laughs> oh, that would. What a, what a culture clash! Sam Allardyce <laughs> the account. That would be an know. Amazon. That would be an Amazon documentary. Yes. We're going to play four four fucking two. Command me, man up front. Just, but for for them to even have Andrea Pirlo on that shortlist, that's just a little window into the madness at Barcelona that you think. That that is that is the answer. It just is beyond me. Be, what did they see last mm. year that thinks he's the man? And this is exceptionally uh, cheap. Yeah, but yeah, big Sam at the new camp. I would I'd pay good money, really good money to, to get a documentary <laughs> for that. It might bring them back to the balance books, right? And uh Chris Hanley just said that would be amazing with laughing emojis. Yeah, it would absolutely that, would. be classic. Um Let's move on just quickly. I wanted to round off two other games. Andy, for yourself, the Abu Dhabi derby took place. Uh, Messi, what a goal that was. But also Kevin De Bruyne, a very lucky man to be staying on the pitch. I thought he should have got a red card. Um, thoughts on that particular match, but also those two particular moments as well. I mean, I couldn't really think of like two teams I hate more than PSG and Man City, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, they're both apparently the lineup that they put out was the most expensive lineup ever seen in like football. And, mm. you know, it's just, it's just basically what happens if you have a dodgy, a, a dodgy state backed regime with unlimited money. Um, that, spectacle there is what happens uh but uh, i guess on the bright side i suppose it does produce some decent football but yeah i think kevin de bruyne i think a lot of comparisons were made with the one basaka tackle that um yeah he got sent against off young for boys. against young boys um mm. i think maybe the mitigating difference that de bruyne got a bit more of a ball but ultimately they're both red cards yeah uh, De Bruyne should have gone off. You know, just because De Bruyne doesn't didn't get a red card for his doesn't mean, even with my own bias, doesn't mean that Juan Bazaki didn't get didn't deserve a red. He did, and he got one. Uh, but that's just inconsistent refereeing, unfortunately. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, and he still lost, so I guess it don't matter overall. <laughs> uh, so, oh, that messy goal! Like we've been waiting. And it's amazing how things could turn around in a space for a few days because literally three or four days ago, I've seen news articles of um, Pochettino and Messi not yeah. getting on too well. It's a little, you know, Mbappe's been a little bit put out because he's kind of out of that Neymar Messi little click and mm. you know, all, all of that kind of like super club first world problem nonsense that you get um, was kind of going on in the papers and stuff. And yeah, all of a sudden, you know, the interchange and the run and, you know, the decoy run from Mbappe was just incredible. And it was just a classic messy finish. Like, yeah, you know, football is all about moments like that of just um, pure genius. Um, yeah, and I thought PSG were good value for the win. Uh, but again, it's not really that high pressure for them. It's not, mm. you know, with PSG, they always tend to crumble a little bit when the stakes are high, when you're talking quarterfinals or semifinals, but 
ultimately, like it's it's a game between two clubs of which one of the managers would be out of the job if we don't win the Champions League at the end of the season. Definitely. And Craig, I thought I'd go to you. Chelsea losing 1-0 against Juventus. 10-second uh, goal from Federico Chiesa in the second half killed the game off for Chelsea. Um, interestingly, obviously, it seems like Juve have got their groove again. Um, certainly defending-wise, they were loving every moment of tackles made by Kalini and Bonucci. Um, but yeah, um, interesting match nonetheless, right? It was because Juventus haven't had a particularly good start to the season. So you were expecting, you know, Champions League winners last season, Chelsea, to go there and react against their Man City defeat at the weekend and really put on a show. But Juventus looked surprisingly quite comfortable. Uh, this is a Juventus squad that have won the last two Serie A games, 3-2, conceding goals um, quite often this season. Remember, they get beat at home to Empoli. Uh, not not too long ago. So yeah. Juventus really showing up for the occasion. The goal itself, if you haven't seen it, listeners, go and, go and look at that. Yeah. The Bernadeschi brings it down and slips it in in one movement, just controlled and flick through and then Chiesa's through and puts it high into the net. It's just a beautiful finish and you can tell that Chiesa really, really enjoyed that goal. Um, and yeah, yeah, fair play, Juventus absolutely deserved it. But yeah, that's um, two defeats for Chelsea in four days where they've been poor in both in both games. They didn't deserve mm. anything from either game. So they need to just reset themselves and go again this weekend and try and get back into winning ways. But credit to Juventus. No one was really expecting them to yeah. to control that game the way they did. And and they did. So, yeah, fair, fair play. Definitely. We'll move on briefly to Serie A because I wanted to bring out the points about Napoli and in particular awesome men. I thought his performance against... I know it's only Calgary... But yeah, he is starting to look like a hell of a talent going forward. Um, I think, yeah, this season, a lot of hopes were around awesome men and what he could do. But he's striking a really good relationship with Zelinski as well. Um, obviously, Insignia being there. And we've still yet to see Dries Mertens as well in that mix as well. So, you know, Napoli seems to be a team that are potentially pushing for this title this year. Um, they've got Fiorentina on Sunday night as well at five o'clock, I think it is. Um, but yeah, um, Craig, I mean, Napoli, do you think this is their year to potentially push on? I think if it's if it's any year, it's going to be this year. We've spoken a few times about how open Serie A will be this year. Juventus aren't where they were. Inter, you know, for all the talk about the putty squad, have started well. Milan are probably the best they've been in what, five years. Um, mm. Roma, I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to, unfortunately. Yeah. But then Lazio, again, are starting to pick up. So you could quite easily see, without even really spoke about Atalanta, you could quite easily yeah. see three or four different clubs who have got probably an equal chance of, of winning Serie A this year. So if it is going to be someone outside of a Juventus or an Inter, then, then Napoli could be absolutely right up there. They're playing really, really well. Mm. And Andy, Osimhen obviously started off quite well at Lille. Um, he's starting to get himself a big name now at Napoli. Um, is he a striker that we should maybe consider as being a top three striker in years to come? Definitely. I mean, I was watching like some of the highlights of his goals and stuff just to try and do a little bit of research. I think one thing I like about him, he's a very good improviser. Mm. Like the amount of if you, there's quite a few goals where he just flicks it over somebody's head or he stumbles a little bit and then just thunder twats it <laughs> straight <laughs> in the net and he's um, you know he's he's absolutely he's absolutely rapid as well like mm. you know he's definitely the next striker that will move to the Premier League for like 60 70 million quid large 
Um, you know, I think he, I think he's brilliant. He's got a little bit of everything in his game. Uh, very, you know, very good finisher, and you know, maybe a little bit like Luis Suarez. I think a, a little bit that he just finds a way to get to where it needs to get to and get a shot off, yeah. which is a skill clubs will pay tens of millions of pounds for. Um, so yeah, I think, and you know, Napoli have got really good records with um, strikers over the years. Yeah. Had him, the likes of uh, Dries Mertens at his peak, um, Edison Cavani. Um, you even remember the days when Gonzalo Iguain was good. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think he'll be the next one that De Laurentiis will be just be like money. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, Craig, let's put you out of your misery. Obviously, Lazio won 3-2. Uh, Zoniola's actions to the Lazio crowd kind of summed it up for Roma where he grabbed his balls and showed it off to the crowd. Um, but more importantly, I think uh, Mourinho was very disappointed. You saw kind of scenes on Twitter around him kind of remonstrating with his team after the game as well. Um, but yeah, what, what did you make of the match? Obviously, very disappointed, I'm assuming, as well. Yeah, very disappointed and I thought obviously follow a lot of Roma groups on social media and the feeling before this game was that the Roma fans were actually really confident. Mm. The start of the season that Roma have made was was great. Obviously one blip away to Hellas Verona, which can happen, these games can happen. But other than that, Roma have been pretty flawless um mm. through this this campaign. Massive game against Derby. And we talk about the North London Derby. And we joke and laugh. I mean, the Roma Lazio is is absolutely up there. Massive game, and Roma just didn't really turn up. The, the very similar to what Arsenal did to Spurs. Actually, the first 25, 30 minutes, Lazio were just absolutely all over Roma. And mm. They 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 got to go back, and you're thinking, right, okay, then you know, Lazio score again, and then it's just kind of fizzled out from there. So Mourinho's got some questions to answer, and it goes back to what I said all of last season is. It's all right for Roma to go out and beat, you know, the dross in the league, and, and they will do that generally pretty comfortable. But I'm yet to see, you know, any, any evidence that they've, breaking, they've broken this duct of beating their teams around them. And if they've got any ambitions of top four, I feel like a broken record said it all last year. If they've got any ambitions of finishing top four or higher, they need to start winning these games against clubs that are mm. around them. I'm talking about Lazio's, Atalanta's, Napoli's, Milan's. Unless they start beating these teams, home and away, they're, they're, they're going to finish in fifth or sixth again, which is not what they brought in Mourinho for. They didn't bring in Mourinho to finish in fifth. They brought in Mourinho to finish top four, back into the Champions League. But they've got to start in these big head-to-head games with the clubs that are around them. They have to start winning these games. Otherwise, we're going to be right back to where we started. Interestingly, Chiro Mobile had a really good game as well. Yeah. He seems to be carving out that defence really easily. I mean, he's in good form as well, but did that surprise you that there wasn't that kind of intensity on him? You know, like it seems like he was just going through it like a knife through butter. It was that easy for him. Yeah, you, you'd have hoped that, that Roma would have had a, a bit of a better game plan um, to deal with Immobile. Maybe they did and he was just too good. Mm. Um, and Immobile's reputation across Europe has been a little bit tarred by his performance at the Euros. So the Euros he was, despite Italy winning it, was generally pretty poor. But in Serie A and for, and for Lazio, he's, he's been electric for yeah. four or five seasons now. The work he does off the ball and bringing other players in is exemplary. So not a surprise that he was good because he's generally pretty good and especially good in derbies. Um, but I'm surprised that Roma didn't have a, a bit of a better game plan to contain him because he's clearly 
their main man, and I would have hoped he would have done a bit mm. more to contain him on the night. But you know, credit where it's due, Lazio were, were very good on the night, particularly in the first half. And Roma didn't deserve anything from the game, and and cannot be cannot be surprised that they didn't get anything. Before we move on to doing our previews for the weekend, uh, we did have Chris Hanley give us a pre-written question, which was, what's happening with Ajax and why are so many teams so far behind? Um, there's a lot of things that are going on in the Eredivisie, but um, Andy, something we kind of reminisce is about Anthony, the uh, right winger that he brought in from Sao Paulo. Um, but there's also some other factors. Obviously, I'm not going to say it's one player, but... He's certainly a player that we have to keep an eye on, don't we? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, he, he, he looked at some of his highlights for the Olympics. He's got, you know, a very typical uh, sort of Brazilian flair player. Really, you know, does stuff that you could barely believe. The ball, I think, it's sort of one where he almost did, took it down out of yeah, did a drag back and took it away from the keeper, all in one sort of from play one that kind of motion um mm. but i think with ajax as a whole they're benefiting from having performed well in the champions league like they're yeah. getting into the group stages every year they're getting into the knockouts quite regularly especially in the semi-final you know uh three six two or three years ago you think about the money that they're generating from that that the other dutch clubs can't they're at a huge the, the the advantage that they have now is much wider than perhaps would have been before because you know, if you go back to last decade it was um you, you weren't really seeing dutch clubs do that well i think up until mm. ajax got to the semi-finals uh, i think it was like about seven or eight years earlier when psv got to the quarter final they hadn't really seen much of dutch clubs in the knockout stages so i think that's part of what it is that they've had some success and they've built on it and thought you know the other clubs like psv and firenord um haven't been able to catch up so i think it's quite a simple logic you know they've paid like seven or eight figure fees for likes of um sebastian haller um daily blind to come back in you know they're even paying by dutch standards big money for players and they're mm. able to retain the ones that they've got you know you think about Matthias De Ligt, they've got 70 million for the fella. Uh, that was only two years ago. Um, yeah. So it's not, it's not like, Yeah, yeah that's what. Frankie yeah, De Jong, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, they're not exactly short of money. Like they sell, no. they, you know, they sell high. Uh, they reinvest bits of it into their squad, not to mention the youth academy and the prospects they've got mm. going through as well. Like they're a very, very well run club. And someone like Edwin van der Sar. Uh, who's the chief executive of Ajax? That's yeah. the kind, you know, that's the kind of a football club I want Manchester United to be um, mm. in terms of how they're run. Um, yeah, yeah. it's unfortunate for them they're playing the Dutch league, to be honest. <laughs> no. But um, yeah. yeah, they're a very, they've just built on the success that they've got, they've had, um, and they're operated like a proper football, how a football club should be. Run. Yeah. Uh, so it's not really a surprise. No, uh, I was going to touch on it though. Um, so they've got a goal difference of 30. So, oh, 28 even, sorry, should I say. They've scored 30 goals, only conceded two so far. Um, one of the things to bear in mind is Ajax haven't really played any of the top sides yet and that will only start happening from about December to January period. 
So you've got Wilhelm II that are currently second in that Eredivisie. And the likes of PSV, as you alluded to, have been rebuilding to an extent. So they're currently lying in fourth, if I remember rightly, with Feyenoord in third place as well. But Feyenoord did beat PSV a few weeks ago, 4-0. Um, and that goal difference, we're talking about Ajax as well. They beat, I think it was Camber 9-0 uh, a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, we know the quality of standard isn't that great in the Eredivisie, but they aren't like, there's not like really bad sides in that league. Um, I think it's just a question of, for Chris's question, I think it's just a question how they're going to compare when they face the big teams because earlier in the season in their kind of equivalent of the charity shields they actually lost to psv 4-0 um so it would be very interesting when they do face up to each other whether you'll see this dominance from ajax and they're only i think it's three goal or three points ahead of villam two uh villam two obviously i think are the kind of maybe the fc20 at the moment where they're actually overachieving to an extent but yes Let's move on to doing a preview of the weekend. So um, we'll start off with yourself, Andy. Um, what are the games that you are fancying from this weekend? Uh, so you've got United versus Everton for a nice, uh, I think it's an early kickoff as well, which is yeah. somewhat annoying because I actually have to get out of bed uh, <laughs> <laughs> for midday, you know, first world problems and all that. Uh, I think um, another I think another good game would be Brighton Hove, Albion, Arsenal on there as well um i haven't really looked too much else into what's going on elsewhere but don't uh, worry Barcelona don't worry between me and was... craig i'm sure we've got it all covered i was gonna um, say there's also barca atletico um on the uh, saturday evening at eight o'clock yeah. that will be an absolute banger just for entertainment reasons or more means that lease of kuman all of the means yes being bigger than ever and also got um, the touring derby as well yeah. Yes, I was going to allude to that. Craig, your picks? Well, I was going to say Stoke versus West Brom on Friday, but uh, <laughs> that, was, that, would be, that would be too obvious. Uh, so for me, Brighton versus Arsenal, I think, is a really yeah. important game. Brighton are absolutely riding a high, uh, especially after the last minute equaliser and the other derby that is not a derby, Crystal Palace Brighton. So that'll be an interesting game into Sunday. Spurs versus Villa in yeah. London. Now, that has got the potential to be very interesting because I think Villa will turn them over. And if that mm-hmm. if if that's a two 0 at seventy minutes, just listen to how angry that crowd gets because there's a one of the Spurs fan groups this week have asked for a meeting with Daniel Levy to talk through the strategy for the club going forward. Mm-hmm. So there's already fans very very upset with what's happening this season, and a result like that that could happen at home to Villa could just be the spark for some protests and some some pretty bad vibes. Uh, and uh, vibes. <laughs> I'd say that could be pretty pretty toxic. Um, and on Sunday night, I've picked Atlanta versus Milan. I think this is two clubs who, as we spoke about previously, should have, you know, Serie A aspirations this year in terms of the Scudetto. So, um, yeah, Atlanta versus Milan on Sunday night. That's the, the quarter to eight game UK time. That's the, that's the, the sort of Serie A 
blockbuster game they put, mm. they put on the Sunday night. That, for me, will be a, a fantastic match that I'll, I'll certainly try and take in. But what about yourself, Adam? What's going to catch in your eye for, for the weekend? Yeah, so addition to what you've just said, uh, Liverpool versus Man City, that's the 4.30pm kickoff yeah. on the Sunday. That certainly will be interesting to see. From your very own Scotland, obviously, I'll be interested to see how Aberdeen faces against Celtic. Obviously, Scott Brown. Yeah. That could be an interesting yeah. match. Um, Rangers versus Hibs. I know Hibs are probably not seen as a big club as such, but they'll be challenging, right? So it won't be an easy yeah. game for Rangers, and given and your defeat tonight as well. Yeah, and Hibs have started so, so well. And we're all, mm. I think we're all Jack Ross fans in this this pod. I've, I've tipped him as yeah. the next Scotland manager. I like Jack Ross, despite being a Celtic supporter. I think he's quite a nice guy and I quite like him. So mm. they've started really well. And this is really, this could be quite an interesting weekend in the title race because Celtic are already six points behind Rangers and if yeah. they go to Aberdeen and draw or lose which is entirely possible for Todry for Rangers or Celtic is generally mm. a pretty tough place to go if they drop points and Rangers win on Sunday you're potentially talking seven to nine points clear when we're just in the beginning of October which in Premier League sorry in old firm Scottish Premier League terms is, is a massive gap that is massive mm. so could be you're absolutely right to point those two games out, Adam. This could that could be very, very interesting come Sunday. I think there's also some um, interesting games in the uh, Moldave Moldavian division. <laughs> so, who's sheriff playing? Who is your sheriff? Yeah. So, on uh, if you're a bit of a loss of what to do at four o'clock on a Saturday, you've got um, Milsami, which are actually top of the Moldavian Premier League, having played three games more, playing at home to. Um, Sheriff, um, <laughs> and then you know, if you fancy a little bit of Moldovan football on a Friday, like during my lunch break, I might tuck into uh, <laughs> how the hell do I pronounce this? Sintu Jorge against Florestry, uh, who have played 12 games and lost 12 games. So they're the um, <laughs> yeah, that is so <laughs> going to lose 12 games. Are always you have to be so they're the um. <laughs> They're the uh, Derby County of uh, Moldova. <laughs> uh, then you've also got... Um, there's only eight teams in the top division of Moldovan football, by the way. <laughs> Who have they got so, a Champions League, please? So, genuinely, I was looking, I'm looking at the moment, right? So, the top um, team, the, the, the league winners Sheriff, going to the... Yeah, basically going to the Champions League qualifiers. <laughs> and then um, the UEFA... And then the other two teams going to the UEFA Conference League qualifiers. Right. That's basically how that works. It's not even Europa League, just Conference League. Just conference, the team that's in yeah. eighth place uh, gets straight up relegated. And there's a playoff for the team that finishes in seventh. So, wow. um, yeah, that is how um, Moldovan football works for anybody that is interested. I reckon me, you, us three and the listeners could probably get 11 boys together. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, we probably compete a lot more than those sides by saying <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jesus. Um, just quickly, uh, another game just to look out for the listener. Uh, Fiorentina versus Napoli. I did mention it when I was covering Napoli section. Uh, very interesting game. That's 5pm on the Sunday. And for those that would like to uh, sort of see a different game, you've got obviously Wickham Wanderers versus Nap or Morecambe. I was going to say Napoli then. Yeah, <laughs> that would be interesting for us. Um, but yeah, must win game there for Wickham. So I'll leave you on that bombshell. And we'll move into the 
end of the show. So without do, a uh, massive thank you to Andy and Craig. Hope you guys have a good weekend. Uh, massive thanks to our listeners as well. I uh, just want to also shout out the Anglo-Italian pod for calling us out um, for being classy in hindsight when we're talking about analysis. So a uh, massive compliment and uh, have to thank those guys. So Rory and Tommy, massively appreciate those comments. Uh, but more importantly, listener, hope you have a good weekend or week whenever you're listening to us. But for now, thank you. And we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.